I always tell people that you've got to do the look through, right? You've got to do the look through to the practices that are in there. How much of those practices are Medicare, Medicaid, cash, um, insurance-based, who are the hospital affiliations? And so in an ideal world, I'm looking for corporate leases from big hospital systems that are, that are putting their employee docs in there. And then it's easy for you then to pull the financials of the hospital system to see how solvent they are or not, right? Because your leases are on the commercial side are only as good as the companies that are behind them. And so even if the physician fails, they're still on the hook for that lease. And so they'll bring somebody else in on a sublease. And so for that, in, in the ideal world, it's an MOB with where the hospital has a large portion of the leases and they're just sticking their own docs in there. The next thing down for me would be probably PE backed, private equity backed um, practices that have already sold. Um, the docs are still partners. They're still on their earn out, which means they haven't gotten all their money yet. They're still earning their, that money out. You can, the PE firm, if they're publicly traded, you can pull their data, pull their 10Q and their 10K, see how, how strong their balance sheets are. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities and future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. On today's podcast episode, I interview Eric Tate. Eric is an MD, MBA, and as an internal medicine physician, he started investing in healthcare properties and creating partnerships with his physician friends. Now he operates an asset management firm that invests in a variety of commercial properties. In this interview, we hear his thoughts on how he approaches evaluating healthcare real estate investments. So Eric, welcome to the uh, Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. Hey, Trisha. Thanks for having me. So I'm glad to interview you on this episode. You're an example of a physician um, who's also a real estate investor and uh, um, healthcare real estate is one of the assets that you have pursued, um, but you have invested in a variety of, of real estate asset classes and, and now created your own investment fund. So why don't you share your background with the audience, how you started to explore doing real estate investing outside of your own healthcare practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so after I finished college with the college, Morales College in Atlanta, came to Houston, where I'm currently uh, residing. Um, and I specifically did an MD, MBA dual degree program um, because I wanted to go to business school to kind of learn how to invest my own money. Um, it was during that time at business school that I figured out very quickly that a stock's price had nothing to do with how well the company was, was, was being run. Uh, or how profitable the company was. So it was at that point I decided that I really didn't want to be in the stock market. So I had to kind of figure out what it is that I wanted to, how I wanted to invest my money. And so then I looked around and figured out uh, what are the what are the ways that people become financially independent quickly. And the two major ways were through real estate or a non-service-based business. Um, I knew that I wanted to practice medicine, so that put me squarely into a service-based business. So that took that out. And so then I went down kind of the real estate pathway from that standpoint um, of just learning it and just kind of getting mentorship in it and just trying to learn as many aspects of the different asset classes in real estate as possible. 
And one of the uh, asset classes that you did start um, investing in is, is healthcare real estate. You said hospitals and sleep centers as an alternative, you know, to stock market investing. So what attracted you to the, those property types? Yeah. So interesting. Um, so the hospital and I completely forgotten about that. You're absolutely right. Um, so the hospital was an interesting play, right? And that's, that's morphed into a few different things. And if I had to do it over again, because it was a full service legacy hospital, I probably would not redo that investment. If it were more of a specialty hospital or a surgery center, I might look at it, but you know, they don't let us slowly primary care doctors into those, those kinds of uh, facilities. Uh, but yeah, on, on that one, I wanted vertical integration of my um, labor. And what I mean by that is as physicians, the, we're kind of the last cog in the machine. We're the, we're, we're the labor force that creates kind of the, 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 the revenue in healthcare but we don't, we, we participate after everybody else's eat. And so if we think about a hospital, right? Um, just as an example, the hospital do, gets what's called a DRG code based upon what someone comes in with, right? So they get this bolus of money that comes at the top and then they pay their salary and their wages and all these different kinds of things, but, but they're seeing the money first from that standpoint. And so um, as a primary care physician, you know, there's not a lot of margin in what, what I was doing. And so a way to up margin what I was doing, in my mind, was to invest in uh, the hospital that I was a part of. Um, it was being sold. The physicians got together. The whole medical staff formed an LLC and basically went to the, to the, to the group that was selling it and said, hey, we need to be a part of this process. If not, you're going to basically sell a hospital without a medical staff. Um, and so at that point, they sat us at the table, they brought in potential buyers or willing to partner with physicians. And that's how that went. And it made sense for me because it was, we, we were getting the real estate as well. And it was, I don't know, 30 acres in downtown Houston. Um, and so for me, that made a lot of sense. I'm like, worst case scenario, we can always sell the real estate and, and, and be whole uh, from that standpoint. And so for me, it was a way to to dip into other revenue streams in healthcare that I was already doing. I was already sending patients to the hospital. I didn't have to change my practice habits. Um, I could do what I would normally do, but not just get a paycheck from seeing the patients. I could also get one as a distribution from what the patients were already gonna do in the hospital. And then this was before the prohibition for physician-owned hospitals went in place. And so that has, it may or may not have been loosened at this point, but that was before all that legislation went into, went into, into effect. Interesting. And then you said that this, you know, starting down this path, you, you had some physician colleagues wanting to invest with you and you started some, some partnerships. So how did those partnerships develop and, and how did they end up? Yeah. So it was, it was, it was much the same thing. And so when, when I first got out of residency, I started just buying single family homes and small apartments and some of the physician colleagues that, that uh, I had were just like, Hey, what are you doing? This is interesting. Can, can we partner with you? And so I went to a securities attorney uh, interestingly enough, I didn't know if they could coming out of business school. So it's interesting what they teach you in business school in terms of what you can and cannot do um, from that standpoint. And so I went to a securities attorney. They said, hey, give them all this paperwork. As long as they make this amount of money, make sure you tell them you're going to lose all their money. If they still want to invest with you, you can raise as much money as you want to and go, do, go, you know, go forward and be, and be prosperous. And so that's literally what we did. We just were putting together groups of of. I would say probably 80% of our physicians right now, of our investors are probably physicians. And so we, we just put our, pool our money and go buy assets. Um, and then that just got over time, um, it just got bigger and kind of bigger in terms of the different types of assets that we would buy 
Um, and it, we're still buying to this day. Well, you said that, uh, like one of your lessons learned is you would have gone after bigger projects versus smaller projects. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So interestingly enough, it's almost the same amount of work doing a single family home as it is doing a multi-million dollar commercial property, right? It's, you know, the due diligence might take a little bit longer, but in the end, I'll be honest with you, it's easier getting a commercial loan than it is getting a, a, a residential loan. Uh, they ask for more documentation. They, 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 there's much more scrutiny on the residential side uh, than there is on the commercial side or the large kind of large asset size. And that's because on the large asset size, the bank is looking towards the asset to make, to make the payments and pay the property back uh, and, pay, and pay back the, the mortgage. Uh, on the residential side, the bank is looking to you and your balance sheet to pay it back. And so once you understand that, you realize, okay, if I'm going to do the same amount of work, why don't I get a much larger kind of nominal return in terms of doing it? Um, and there are a lot more leverage points when you move into commercial versus residential. Um, and just one major point for people just to think at a high level is that the value of the property uh, is determined by the cash flow on commercial properties, whereas on residential properties, it's done by comparative market analysis or what other residential properties have sold for in that area, irrespective of how high the cash flow may be. So you could have a short-term rental that you use a, a single family home for making way more than you would if you were renting it by the month. It's still going to be worth the same for the most part in the eyes of a bank. Right. Exactly. So you started, so then when in this process did you decide to start Vernonville Asset Management and branch off into different asset, you know, having a variety of asset classes? Well, it's interesting. So Vernonville Asset Management was my own management company for my personal investments. And so, you know, we set up an asset protection structure early. And so the Vernonville was the was the management company. And then we would create other LLCs to hold our single family or our multifamily. So Vernonville would never even to this day, it doesn't own anything. It's just, it's, it's, it's my alter ego in the world. Um, so it signs the contracts and does all those kinds of things. And so when we started bringing outside investors, I just, it just stopped being the management company for my own personal properties and became the management company for all the properties. But all of our properties are then put into individual LLCs and those individual partnerships are where any employees sit or where any of those kind of things sit. And so Vernonville really is a siloed entity that is a public facing entity. Um, and so I, I set that up in 07 when I got out of residency. And so it's always been around. It just didn't uh, function as it just didn't function into the public sphere as an investment firm that was taking outside investor dollars from day one. But it's it's as old as any other LLC that I have. And it's been around, you know, 13 plus 14 years at this point. Well, I want to talk about a quote that you have on your website that I talk to a lot of my clients about, because, you know, one of the biggest um, things that I think are either not considered or thought about maybe after the fact is, you know, once I own this and I'm a still a practicing physician, how does it operate? So you said, so your quote is in the real estate space, bigger projects with multiple investors tend to be less risky and more hands-off than smaller projects. And on our larger projects, we hire professionals whose sole job is to manage the project. So my advice to others is to get into larger deals earlier in your career. But the part of this that I find interesting that the, we hire professionals whose sole job is to manage the project. So did, you know, you, did you self, did you start self-managing and then, um, and then what was your experience and when did you start to realize, wait a second, um, you know, <laughs> I don't need to have two full-time jobs and, you know, there's people that can do this while I'm also doing my job and just tell me when I need to make a decision. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I still self-manage. I still have dozens of single family homes I manage myself, but I have systems in place. It takes me less than three hours a month to deal with it if I, ha- if I really have to. And that's really just when tenants are turning over. Um, so interestingly enough, I never self-managed any of the projects that we brought in outside investors in, right? And so you just, for me, I hold kind of other folks' money in higher regard than mine, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so we just went on the professionalization side of that from day one, um, just from a fiduciary responsibility and all of those kind of things. And then just, again, from a time standpoint, right? I, w- I, I, I no longer work full-time um, in, in, in day-to-day in medicine, uh, but it just was that the more assets you get, you just, you move into what's called an asset management role where you're overseeing everything and the reports come to you. Um, but in the end, I'm a, I'm a pretty good doctor. I'm an okay, you know, property manager, but I don't do that every day. And I don't, honestly, I don't want to do it every day. There are people who so love is to do that. So if their sole love is to do that, I'm going to let them do that, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a team builder. I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. Honestly, most of the time I don't want to be, right? If you look at kind of how we structure, we partner with operators who already are in the space and we just bring the capital and, and, a, and a little bit of expertise and know-how. I don't want to be the person who has to know everything, who has to do everything, right? Because at that point, you end up with single point failure, right? I get by a bus, people's money goes, goes to the four winds, right? Right now, if my partners and I were to disappear, the third party management team would just keep keep running the property, right? You have to bring right. somebody else in to do the distributions. But, you know, I, I just don't need to be the expert in everything. I need to be the expert in the in the things that I know. And putting together teams is what I've become expert in. And so once you understand that, your whole world frees up because then you don't have to be 100% over everything. You, you can broaden your horizons. And, and that's very hard for physicians because many of us are type A. And so we think that we're the best. We've always been the smartest. We're always the best people in the room. We think no one can do it better than us. And I promise you, when it comes to investing, almost everybody can do it better than you. So just find the people who can and partner with them if you want to expand kind of your portfolio. If you just want to have a small portfolio that you're just controlling and control everything, then just do everything yourself. But understand that the pie that is your life in terms of time, there's a portion of that that's going to be taken from other things for you to be able to do this. And so I believe investing to increase your quality of life. And so unless you just love managing property, it probably isn't increasing your quality of life. And, and I would argue you're probably working hard enough as a, as a physician that you don't want to spend your off time doing kind of this drudgery as it relates to property management, because it's not sexy at all. <laughs> well, it's not. And when, uh, you know, and vendors, the vendors don't, they're not on time because you can't always accurately predict how, how long it's going to take to fix a plumbing problem. And then you're sitting there waiting for them and, you know, you have other things to do. Um, so (laughs) specifically for my audience, did you find as a physician and even now, like if you, when you're presented with healthcare properties, are they easier? Is it easy for you to digest them and understand like their purpose, the healthcare companies and that occupy them, their location and relationship with the hospital that needs to be there for it to be successful? Like, is it easy for you to understand these? Do you feel like, you know, I will tell you that, you know, I would hire somebody like you around that who's had that experience. Um, because, and it's this, right? So my MBA is in healthcare management and entrepreneurship. So I've been ex- telling people for a long time that we've been going, we're going to value-based care, fee-for-services 
is going away. All these different kinds of permutations are happening. And then this is pre the private equity wave of coming in. It was pre consolidation. And so I always tell people that you've got to do the look through, right? You've got to do the look through to the practices that are in there. How much of those practices are Medicare, Medicaid, cash, um, insurance based? Who are the hospital affiliations? And so in an ideal world, I'm looking for corporate leases from big hospital systems that are that are putting their employee docs in there. And then it's easy for you then to pull the financials of the hospital system to see how solvent they are or not, right? Because your leases are on the commercial side are only as good as the companies that are behind them. And so even if the physician fails, they're still on the hook for that lease. And so they'll bring somebody else in on a sublease. And so for that in, in the ideal world, it's an MOB with where the hospital has a large portion of the leases and they're just sticking their own docs in there. The next thing down for me would be probably PE backed, private equity backed um, practices that have already sold. Um, the docs are still partners. They're still on their earn out, which means they haven't gotten all their money yet. They're still earning their, that money out. You can, the PE firm, if they're publicly traded, you can pull their data, pull their 10Q and their 10K, see how, how strong their balance sheets are um, and how well they will hold up from a, from a lease standpoint. Um, and so back to that look through kind of situation. And then, you know, I like infill stuff, right? I don't want new office buildings that have been built in, on spec and it's a new practice and a new, and they're trying to figure it out. I like, you know, occupancies in the market, 90 plus percent. So these guys are trying to move, they can't, and other people are wanting to likely move in. Cause I always tell people about, about real estate. It's not about your tenant today. It's about how many tenants are lined up behind today's tenant to keep you occupied over the life of your ownership of that particular property. Um, and so that's why I'm mindful about, about kind of new spec builds or practices that don't have good margins. So that don't have a, a portion of their cash, a cash pay, pay, don't have surgery suites in the offices potentially as well, where they're getting revenue bumps above and beyond what Medicare, Medicaid insurance companies are, are potentially giving them. So those are the things that I look at. And I'll be honest with you, that's way more complicated than some of the commercial stuff that we do. But it's the things that you have to think about in the MOB space, because when it's really good, it's super hands off. But when, a, when an area is transitioning, so the example is the building, MOB building I started in, um, that building has probably stayed 40% occupied through 20 years, and it's literally next to a hospital. Um, and a new group came in and is now demedicalized it, and they're probably 80% occupancy, right? So. Just you just have to be mindful of the trends, the patient population, all of those kinds of things when you're looking at these 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 assets. And why do you think your MOB stayed forty percent occupied across from a hospital? Um, because we were, I don't know if we're technically deemed a critical access hospital, but the we did the second most charity care outside of our public right. health system, so it was a bad payer mix. Um, and the hospital wasn't really progressive in recruiting new and younger docs, and some of that is the issue of the older medical staff and kind of how they operated. Um, and so it was just a loss of vision for the hospital and the hospital's lack of, of market definition. And so they didn't really have a place in the market that they could call their own. They wanted to shy away from being a Medicare and Medicaid hospital, which will make you a lot of money if you lean into it. They decided that they wanted to be a ritzy hospital and go after the rich people, which doesn't really work when we have the top hospital in the state of Texas system in our backyard and the largest medical center in the world three miles away, right? So it was just a lack of 
<clears throat> strategic positioning for the hospital. So it just kind of dwindled over time. Is it still open? Yeah, it's still open. It's still, I mean, literally, we're, we're the ones who are invested in the hospital. So oh, okay. it's, it's still open. It is, it is still open. Yes. <laughs> They're shrinking their footprint, but it is still open. So what are your thoughts for a physician in private practice? You know, they, so it, it's a, they're a large practice. They have many sites. What is your thoughts on them owning, you know, trying to find a piece of real estate that they own um, or even purchasing a larger property and occupying part of it, either bringing partners in, you know, to fill in the rest or, you know, leasing out to other tenants. So what is your thoughts just as a investor and a physician, you know, what do you think about that as an investment for a private practice? Yeah. If you're going to be in practice for 20, 30 years, I was told day one, like if you're going to go into private practice, buy your own building. I was told that immediately. Um, I decided not to go into private practice initially, so I didn't, but we actually did look to buy that MOB um, years ago and just couldn't make it make sense. So I was always kind of looking. Um, but you, if you know you're going to be practicing for a while, you know that you've got partners that are going to be in there. If you're going to be a partner emeritus, yes, absolutely. Um, just because you're, you're going to be able to control an expense line um, and you can income shift some. And so, you know, get with your tax accountant and those kind of things. But, but getting your income through rent is more tax efficient than getting your income through, through directly yep. through your medical practice. Because one is ordinary incomes, one is passive income. One has a lot more deductions on it than the other. Um, and there's a way to, to, to do some income shifting. Again, get with your tax professional about how to best do that and stay in IRS compliance. Um, and so it's just, there's just a lot more that you can do with it, right? Get to the point where you're retiring. You can have other docs come in and, and rent from you. You can completely turn it over. Someone can buy your practice out, then they're renting from you. And it can be a part of your, your real estate portfolio in retirement. Um, as well. So I'm absolutely um, a fan of it if you know you're going to be practicing for a while. And I see some successful practices, even um, you talked like the the succession plan, they're able to use it to also help recruit younger physicians. And, you know, as older physicians are are wanting to slow down sort of thing. So, you know, they can use it to their advantage with that as well. Yep. You just have to think about it, right? You have to think about how you're going to divvy up the shares um, how you're doing up the shares, do new, do new practice partners get a share in the building, you know, getting the valuations done, you know, it's a way to potentially, as people are retiring, they can sell their proportional share out to the younger guys. It just has to be fair, right? You have to be thinking about it on the front end and it just has to be fair, um, from that standpoint. And so, you know, going into it, you want to think about those kinds of things, um, and what that looks like. Absolutely. Well, um, Eric, we're going to move into the Q&A part of this uh, interview. Okay. Get to know you a little bit. So uh, what was your first job? Uh, I was a custodian. No. I, shoveling snow and that kind of stuff. I was the basic neighborhood handyman growing up. And then I was doing custodial services for an art gallery that my mother was on the board of. Um, kind of janitorial kind of stuff. Um, you know, my tastes outstripped my parents. Uh, what my parents wanted to spend on me. So I was always happy to work extra to get the brand name and designer stuff that I wanted. So hard work was never a, a, a an issue for me. I like that. Uh, what else would you want to be doing for a living? No, nothing. <laughs> I, I invest, I practice, I have like the, the best life in the world. So, and I control my time completely. So there's literally nothing, like I have to work right now to fight to stay out of having a new job to fall into. Cause right now I control my time. So Right. Uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't change kind of what I'm doing at all right now. Very nice. What are, who are you reading right now for news information or inspiration? Uh, I'm, I've, I've really, really discovered Twitter now. Like 
I had always had a Twitter account, but I wasn't paying attention. But there's like some really, really smart people on there. I don't engage in snark. I, I save that for Facebook groups. Um, so I just take in. And then occasionally if people make some bad mistakes on real estate, I'll, I'll give them some data and give them a different kind of way to think about it. Um, but right now, Twitter is a big thing. Um, I go to Drudge Report so I can get my stuff kind of on the, on the right. I might go to Huffington Post to get my stuff on the left. Uh, BBC, uh, Guardian, those kind of things. Um, but I'm relatively selective about what I take in because, you know, you know, we've got 9 billion people on the planet. So we are a growing species. Nothing is ever really that bad for us in the West like that. So I tend to control the amount of negative information that comes to me because I just bet on humans. And I'm pretty sure that we're, we're a hardy species. So, you know, we'll get through whatever we need to get through. I just, I just have that faith. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Decide what I'm going to do. So <laughs> I have gotten to the point where I do what I feel. And I'm really, really analytical. But what I do is I listen to my body. So if there's some days I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stay in bed till 11 o'clock. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to do this. And so what? So I do what I feel a lot more, which I didn't as a kid and, and growing up. The older I get, the more I get in tune with just how my body is motioning and how things. And I just realize that things work out. So I don't need to press. So I'm just, I'm just wildly conscious of how I'm feeling at almost every moment. And then I just adjust accordingly. Nice. How many kids do you have and how old are they? Two little girls are upstairs right now running around. We're about to go out for some stuff. They are 12 and nine. Oh, very nice. That's a great age. Um, all right. Two more questions. Are leaders born or trained? Uh, both. So everyone can be trained to be a leader, but there are some people who are naturally just whatever reason are naturally assertive, but almost everything outside of kind of maybe raw athletic talent can be trained. You can be trained to almost to do almost anything at a more than acceptable level if you put the time in. Like that. When I interview physicians, this is a question I ask them. So since you're both, I put both on here, but do you feel clinicians are born with the desire to heal or do they, do they learn it through their medical training? Uh, both. Um, so I knew I wanted to be a physician at roughly age six. Um, and anybody who knew me, who knows me from back then will tell you like, oh yeah, you became a doctor. Well, you said you were going to, right? Um, and so my youngest has kind of that natural kind of for animals. And we went camping the other day and someone got stung by a bee and she just came into the tent, grabbed something and went back out. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And then she came back. She's like, oh, somebody got stung by a bee. I just took the first aid kit and did it, did it, all on her own. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. And she's nine. Right. So I think some people take a, have a natural kind of calling towards helping others in that way. Um, and I think some people go to medical school or intellectually curious, and then they use the science of fixing the problem that is the human. And they use the, the medicine to be able to do that in terms of kind of that intellectual curiosity. They just have to be trained on bedside manner. Um, and so that's, you know, right now we're, 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 we're very much skimming off those who test, test very well. And I think we're losing something as it relates to kind of the human connection around that. So, but I won't get on that soapbox today. <laughs> that's a, that's a whole other half an hour. Yeah. Whole hour. Yeah. Day. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you very much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation and I appreciate it. No, Trisha, thank you for having me on and, and happy to help in any way that I can. 
I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.